If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open to Acts chapter 16. We're reading through the New Testament this year as a church. Each Sunday we're preaching from a passage that we've read the previous week. This last Wednesday night was our last Wednesday night on campus until we come back at the end of summer. And as the adults met in this room and sang hymns and prayed and studied the Word, we looked at Acts chapter 15. And one of the things I said Wednesday night in our adult Bible study is that Acts chapter 15 might be the most important chapter in the book of Acts. Everything on the front end builds up to the decision made in Acts chapter 15, and everything on the back end flows out of the decision that was made in Acts chapter 15. Our passage this morning is Acts chapter 16, and while I don't think Acts 16 vies for the most important chapter in the book of Acts, personally, this is my favorite chapter in the book of Acts, and we're going to talk about some of the people that Paul met in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Let me set the stage for us as we think about what's going on in Acts chapter 16 in the middle of the book of Acts here. At the end of Acts 15 and the end of Acts 16, the Apostle Paul is going on his second of three missionary journeys. On this trip, he was accompanied by Silas and Timothy. So if you've read this section this last week, you remember that Paul and Barnabas went on the first missionary journey. They were the tag team. And when they got ready to go on the second missionary journey, they had a falling out. They had a disagreement. Barnabas wanted to take his cousin Mark, who had abandoned them and left the, the first missionary journey early. And Paul said, I don't want anything to do with that quitter. I'm not going on a mission trip with him. He would later be reconciled with Mark. But at this point, he said, there's no way I'm going on a mission trip with that guy. So Barnabas and Paul went separate ways. Paul picked up a man named Silas, he picked up a man named Timothy. Both of them are mentioned in the storyline here. He also picked up somebody named Luke. Luke is not mentioned by name. You won't find him listed as one of Paul's companions, but Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. He's the author of the book of Acts. And there are places in the book of Acts where Luke stops saying, they did this, they went there, they did this. And he says, we went there, and we did this, and we did this thing, and we shared the gospel with these people. And this part of Paul's second missionary journey is one of those places where Luke joins the team. Now, I want you to see the point of this mission trip, because I think it's important in the passage that we're about to look at. In Acts 15.41, it says, Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then there's a, a bracket statement in chapter 16, verse 5, the churches were strengthened. Sometimes we think about a mission trip as you're going to go and you're going to talk to people who have never, ever, ever heard about the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to share the gospel with them. That is certainly a mission trip. That is evangelistic work. But one of the things you need to understand is that the Great Commission is a call to make disciples. Not just to get people to the point of decision, but to help them grow as disciples. And so to that end, when Paul thought about his missionary work, he said, yes, we're going to go share the gospel. Yes, we're going to plant churches where there are no churches. But then we're going to go back and we're going to strengthen those churches. We're going to teach those churches. We're going to disciple the people in those churches. And that's what Paul set out to do on this second missionary trip. Then we come to Acts 16, 6 to 10. And Paul has a vision. 
And in this vision, Paul sees a man in Macedonia calling out, come help us. And basically what Luke describes in Acts 16, 6-10 is the Holy Spirit, doesn't tell us exactly how, not letting Paul do what he wanted to do on a mission trip and redirecting Paul to the plans that God had for him. If you don't think God still does this today, just talk to Chris Harrington about planning a mission trip. You get an idea, you say, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going, and then Chris has a week like he had this last week where they say, your flights are canceled. That's not what you're doing. That's not when you're going. I have something else for you to do. God does that, and he did that to the Apostle Paul here. Now, we'll go to the map just to make sense of this. And I know the names are too small for you to see. I just want you to see the general layout of this part of the world. This is the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. So Africa's on the bottom, Europe is on the top, the Middle East is on the right. The circle on the bottom right of the screen is Jerusalem. So that's where Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. The circle just above Jerusalem on the right side of the screen is Antioch. That's the city where the church was located that sent Paul and Barnabas out on the first missionary trip and then sent Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke out on the second missionary trip. Paul's intention was to go to Asia. Not the continent of Asia, but the Roman province of Asia. And it's that pink blob right in the middle of this map. That's what we would call Turkey, the nation of Turkey. Paul said, that's where I'm going to go, and I want to strengthen those churches, and I want to strengthen those disciples. The Holy Spirit said, I have a better plan. Why don't you go instead to Macedonia? And that top left part of the screen, that sort of brown area at the top left, is Macedonia. It's the northern part of what we would call Greece. This is the gospel entering Europe for the very first time. And Paul goes to a city named Philippi in Macedonia. Philippi. It was a wealthy, wealthy city. It was located on the trade superhighway, a Roman road that you can still visit called the Via Ignatia. And there was all sorts of business moving up and down this road. And that's the road that Paul would have taken as he went to Philippi. When he got to Philippi, you know in Odessa there's a church on every corner? Well, in Philippi there was a pagan temple on every corner. A temple to the emperor, a temple to Zeus, a temple to this god, a temple to that goddess. Every corner, a pagan temple. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16. Paul met three people in Philippi. He met a woman named Lydia. He met a demon-possessed slave girl. And he met the jailer of the county jail, the prison in Philippi, which you can still visit the ruins of today. He met the jailer of Philippi. Now, each of these people had an interesting experience with Paul. You read about Lydia and the jailer, putting their faith in the Lord Jesus, and they become founding members of First Baptist Church in Philippi. You read about the slave girl. She's delivered from her demonic oppression, but it's not ever explicitly said that she becomes a Christian or that she joins this church or that she's taken in. But most people have assumed that her owners would have had no use for her if she was not able to divine the future and predict the future through this demonic force and that possibly Paul and this church took her in. Our focus is going to be on Lydia. Admittedly, the most boring part of the story. The most non of like, can we talk about the demon possession? Can we? 
Can we talk about the jailer who beat him up and put him in? No, we're going to talk about Lydia. And here's the takeaway from what Luke tells us about Lydia and salvation coming to her family. Salvation always requires the miracle of regeneration. Anytime a sinner is saved, the miracle of regeneration is involved. No sinner will ever be saved apart from the miracle. I can't perform it. You can't perform it. Only God can perform it of regeneration. And when you look at the story of Lydia, that's the thing that Luke highlights is the work that God did in her life in this miracle of regeneration. So, take your copy of the Scriptures. Let's read this short passage about Lydia, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of His Word. Acts 16.11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voice, uh, voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as your people, we're thankful that you have spoken to us in the Scripture. We're thankful for this story of the early church, of the gospel being spread. We're thankful for the accounts of Paul and his missionary journeys and the way that you directed him to Philippi. Lord, some amazing things happened in Philippi, not least of which was the salvation of this woman, Lydia. As we think about this miracle of regeneration and what is involved in a sinner being saved, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear what your word has to say to us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in about the sixth grade, my church hosted an evangelist, sort of a motivational speaker slash evangelist. His name was Joseph Jennings. And Joseph Jennings had an upbringing that was very different than mine. I won't go into all the details and all the differences, but I grew up in the church nursery, attending church from a very young age. My mom was the children's director at our church. We were there all of the time. So you can imagine I'd lived a pretty wild life by the time I got through elementary school. Just grew up being a church kid. Well, we bring in this guy named Joseph Jennings. He grew up in the slums of Atlanta. He had a very rough upbringing. He grew up in a broken home. He had many, many disadvantages. You can imagine what some of those were. When he was a young man, probably not much older than me, he joined a gang and he was folded into this life of uh, crime and all the things that went on with this, this gang that he was a part of. He rose to prominence in the gang, he became a leader in the gang, and he was very active in all sorts of uh, bad things in and around the Atlanta area. And then at some point, he met the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life was radically changed. 
just absolutely 180 degrees pursuing and chasing a life of crime to completely living for Jesus Christ, sold out, committed his life to be an evangelist and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard stories like that. Not every testimony sounds like that, but you've heard testimonies like that. We have people in our church whose story is fairly similar to that. They say, at one point I was completely chasing after sin and darkness, and then the Lord got a hold of me, I met Jesus Christ, and my life was completely, radically different on the other side. Sometimes stories of salvation are dramatic. And if you've been reading the book of Acts, as we read through the New Testament together, you've come across some pretty amazing stories of salvation, pretty dramatic stories of salvation. You've read about the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus Christ in one day. What a dramatic thing that would have been to be a part of. You've read about Samaritans and Gentiles becoming Christians. Now look, you and I read that, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us because we're all Gentiles. Can I just explain something to you? The Jews hated the Samaritans and they hated the Gentiles. And the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles hated the Jews and the Samaritans. They all hated each other. They wanted nothing to do with each other. And all of a sudden, all of these people are putting their faith in Jesus Christ and they're all part of the same congregation. They're not splitting up and going their separate ways, but they're united in their faith in Jesus. It's a remarkable thing. Simon Magus, a wizard, a real-life magician. This man would tap into evil powers for his own advancement. He meets Jesus Christ. His life is radically changed. Saul of Tarsus, Corey preached about the conversion of Saul several weeks ago. He is literally breathing out threats and murder against the church. He meets Jesus and he becomes an apostle, a missionary, a preacher, a pastor, an author of 13 books in our New Testament. Sergius Paulus was a Roman proconsul, a high-ranking Roman government official, Somebody who was bought into the Roman pantheon and the Roman system of, of pagan worship. He converts and he leaves all of that behind to follow Jesus Christ. In Ephesus, if you keep reading, so many people get saved in Ephesus, a pagan city, that the idol factory starts handing out pink slips. Nobody's buying idols anymore. They keep making them, no one's buying them, there's a surplus, they're not worth anything, no one wants them, and they lay off the workforce at the idol factory in Ephesus. All of these are dramatic stories of salvation. Right here in Acts 16, there's two dramatic stories of salvation. There's this slave girl who is literally possessed by a spirit of divination in her owner's user to predict the future, and people pay them money so that she might predict the future them. She is delivered from that demonic, satanic oppression. And her life has changed. Did she become a Christian? We don't know, but her life was changed. She was delivered by the power of Jesus Christ. The jailer in Philippi, a rough, blue-collar, man's man kind of guy, doesn't take nothing off nobody. He's involved in beating Paul and Silas one moment, then the next moment, he's washing their wounds and he's feeding them dinner. 
because he's met the Lord Jesus Christ. These are dramatic stories of salvation. And right in the middle of it, you have Lydia. And I'm just going to say what you're thinking. It's kind of boring. Lydia, how'd you get saved? Well, one night, I was feeling really wild, and I went to a prayer meeting down by the river. Prayer meeting. Wow. She's doing a religious thing. She's doing a spiritual thing. And yet what Paul shared with her and what God did in her life was nothing short of miraculous. She may not have the testimony of somebody like the Apostle Paul, murderer, Joseph Jennings, gang member. But the only reason that she had a testimony is because someone shared the gospel with her and God did a miracle in her life. So our focus this morning is Lydia. Who was she and how did God save her? We'll answer the first question with several statements. Number one, Lydia was a Gentile woman from Thyatira. A Gentile woman from Thyatira. She was not a Jew. Some scholars think, I'd never read this until this week, some people think that the name Lydia was sort of an ethnic regional nickname like If you were to move up to Oklahoma and tell them that you're from Texas, they might call you Tex. Some people think Lydia was that kind of name, that it referred to the region where she would have been from. Other people say, no, that's just an actual first name. There was other people we know of named Lydia. But this woman named Lydia was a Gentile, and she was from Thyatira. So I'll go back to the map just one more time. Right in the middle of that pink province of Asia is Thyatira, and up on the top left in Macedonia is Philippi. So you get some sense of the distance. There's a a good bit of land and a good bit of water between Thyatira and Philippi. One of the interesting things is that archaeologists for a long time have been digging up around this part of the world. And archaeologists have gone to Thyatira, and they have dug around in the ground, and they've looked at the ruins and the rubble, And they came back to us, and the archaeologist said, we have found something very interesting. The people of Thyatira had a massive trade guild and a massive industry where they dyed purple cloth. And people who read the Bible say, yes, we know that. We read about Lydia from Thyatira. She was involved in this. And they say, oh, no, but you won't believe. They would dye this cloth purple. Some of them would go down to the to the water, to the ocean, and they would catch this kind of shellfish and they would crunch it up and they would use the dye from this this shellfish. And other people didn't like the water, so they would grow these crops out in their field and they would pull the crops and they would use the root and they would mash it up and they would make purple dye. It was big, big business in Thyatira. And Luke describes exactly that, a woman from Thyatira who was involved in selling purple cloth, which brings us to this truth. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. She was a woman of means. Philippi was a wealthy city. Luke is right when he says it is a leading city in this area. They had money. There was so many people with so much money that there was demand for a woman like Lydia who sold high-end goods. This was not the kind of stuff you bought at a discount store or a big box store. These were custom garments dyed purple, not for for poor people, for lower class people, but only for the the super, super wealthy. Lydia is basically involved in high-end fashion. I was with my daughter at a store recently, 
and she was looking at these shoes, and I picked up a pair of shoes, and I looked at the price on the bottom, and I asked the man standing there, is that the real price? And my daughter said, we are leaving this store. Get out of here right now. That's the kind of store Lydia would have sold her stuff in. It's the kind of stuff when you picked it up, you would have said, are you serious right now? This is really the price of this this garment? This was a high-end luxury good. She was selling this product in a wealthy, wealthy town. She's a Gentile woman from Thyatira. She's wealthy in her business endeavors. And she is a worshiper of God who prayed regularly. She is a worshiper of God who prayed regularly. What Luke is telling us here is that Lydia was a God-fearer. A God-fearer. She was a Gentile who had turned away from the pagan deities of her people and put her faith in the one true God, the God of Israel. No, she did not have Abraham's DNA. No, she was not technically a Hebrew. No, she was not technically Jewish. Her DNA map would have come from all over the place. It wouldn't have had any Jewish DNA in it. But she had turned from her pagan past and she was worshiping the God of Israel. And she was a a person of prayer. Archaeologists digging around Philippi, one of the things they have not found in Philippi is a synagogue. It's possible that there were not enough Jewish men in Philippi to establish a synagogue, But there was a place of prayer out of the town, out by a river. You can visit this place today. And on the Sabbath day, that's an important detail. It wasn't just any old day, but it was on the Sabbath day, she goes out to pray with a group of women. Now, one more thing you need to know about Lydia. Lydia was a sinner. She was a sinner. She had a lot of money. It's likely that she had more than one house, one in Thyatira and one in Philippi that we know of. She ran a profitable business. She had a promising career. She rubbed shoulders with really important people all over the ancient world. She was religious. She was spiritual. She was prayerful. And she was a sinner. When I say to you that Lydia was a sinner... Your mind probably goes where my mind goes. I say to you, Lydia was a sinner, and you start thinking, what did she do? Tell us, what did she do? Was the the purple cloth dying, was that like a, a front for illegal money laundering activities? Was she really involved working for, what was going on? Was there like a murder for hire plot somewhere in here? We want all the gory details. We want to know what did she do that made her a sinner. But when I say to you Lydia is a sinner, I'm not really talking about what she did. I'm talking about who she was. Yes, sin is falling short of God's glory. It's something that we do. We commit sin. But before we ever commit sin... Sin is who we are. We sin in action because we are sinners in our heart. That's true for all of us, and it was true for Lydia. Acts chapter 26, 18 says that until God opens your eyes to the truth of the gospel, you live your life under the power of Satan, the father of lies. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, 10, 11, 12 says, Not one of us is righteous, no, not one. None of us seek God. 
None of us. Romans 3.23 says we've all fallen short of God's glory. We have all sinned. And look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from God's grace, that is true of every human being that you will ever meet in your life. Every human being that will ever walk in this room and sit in a worship service. Every human being who has ever lived. Apart from God's grace, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We follow along with the course of the world. We submit our lives to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We follow our hearts, our desires, our sinful minds, and we are by nature children of wrath. Forget worrying about what she did That's who she was. That's who you and I are, apart from God's grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. So if that's who Lydia was, how was she saved? Three things had to happen, and they had to happen in this order. Number one, Paul shared the gospel with Lydia. Now this is a short passage. Luke doesn't tell us what Paul shared with Lydia. He just says that he talked to these women. Lydia listened to the things that Paul was saying. So we assume that the things that he was saying were very similar to the things that he said other times. He preached or he taught or he shared the gospel. He probably talked about God and His holiness. He probably talked about Lydia, these women, and their sinfulness. He probably talked about Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. He probably talked to them about the promise of the forgiveness of sins if they would repent and believe. He shared the gospel with these women. And apart from somebody hearing the good news about Jesus Christ, no one will ever be saved. No one will ever be saved. Let me say that differently. The only way that anyone will ever be saved is by the preaching and the sharing and the teaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that anyone will ever be saved. Can I just tell you, while we're thinking about this issue of the gospel, that there are a lot of churches in the United States that are confused on this point. And there's a lot of churches that think there are other things that are necessary for people to be saved. For example, some of our charismatic friends think that unless there's a bunch of signs and wonders and speaking in tongues and healings and this, that, and the other, nobody's going to get saved unless that sort of stuff happens. All of these miraculous things have to take place if anybody's going to get saved. What about attractional churches? The Bible Belt is filled with attractional churches. These are the churches that say everything has to be cool. The music has to be cool. The clothing of the preacher, I'm sorry you're at Emmanuel, has to be cool. The age of the people on the platform has to be in a certain window. You can't put old people on the stage. How's anybody going to get saved if you have old people on the stage? That's not how it works. The lights have to be just right. The lasers and the hazers and the smoke and the stuff and the videos. All the production has to be just right if anybody's going to get saved. 
political churches. You got to beat the right platform drum. You got to pick the right horse in the race. You got to be on the right candidate. Nobody's going to get saved if you get that stuff wrong. Liberal churches laugh at all of this. There's plenty of liberal churches, even in the South, even in the Bible Belt. They say, why are you worrying about people getting saved? Everyone's going to be saved. No one is lost. Sin is not a problem. We're more enlightened than to believe that people are dead in trespasses and sins. Sin is not a problem that we need to worry about. Everyone's going to be saved in the end. What does the Bible say about salvation? Paul says this, Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the power of God for salvation. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. It's the truth that there is a holy God who created you, that you are a sinner who has fallen short of His glory, and that Jesus Christ lived and died for sinners. He rose from the dead and He offers you the forgiveness of sins if you will repent and believe. Apart from that message, there is no hope of salvation. That's how it played out in Acts 10, which some of you read recently. Cornelius was a very religious guy. He was a very upstanding member of the community. But he didn't get saved until someone showed up and talked to him about Jesus Christ. That's the same pattern on display in Romans chapter 10, which says this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I've abbreviated what Paul says. He says, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in Him if they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they going to preach unless they're sent? Somebody has to go tell them about Jesus Christ. Because apart from hearing the good news of Jesus, no person will ever be saved. Now you know and I know that a lot of people hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And not all of them are saved. So here's the second thing that had to happen in Lydia's life. God opened Lydia's heart to the gospel. Paul came and preached, and then God opened her heart. Verse 14 is the most important verse in this passage. It's the most important thing that ever happened to Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Bible describes this miracle in a lot of different ways, but in all of the ways the Bible talks about this miracle, it's the miracle of regeneration, new birth. Paul could not do this for Lydia. Paul could not open her heart. In fact, if you keep reading, you'll soon come to Acts 17. Paul preaches the same gospel in Athens, and they literally laugh him off the stage. Their hearts were not opened. They heard the same message, but their hearts were not opened. God did not open their hearts. God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to the things that Paul was saying. It's the miracle of regeneration. I can't do this for you. I can't. It's why our elders pray, our staff prays for you. That God would open your eyes and your hearts and your ears to the truth of the gospel. Because we can't open any of those things. We can share the gospel, but only God can carry out this miracle of regeneration. Let me just show you a few verses in the Bible. All of these verses talking about this miracle 
of regeneration. Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart. John 6, 44, the Father draws people. Jesus said no one can come. No one has the ability to do it unless the Father draws them. He's got to open their heart. He's got to draw them. Look at the next one. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We shared. Apollos shared. But God's the one who gives the growth. We can't produce spiritual growth in anybody. Look what we read in Ephesians 2, which we read earlier. God made us alive. That's the grammatical connection in that sentence. We were dead. God made us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. We can't make each other alive. God makes dead sinners alive. Look what we read in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who starts the good work in people? God does. God starts that work. He opens hearts. He draws people to Jesus Christ. Look what we read in Titus chapter 3. He saved us. Not because of works done by us, but it's according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives new birth. Regeneration. It's not something that we do. It's not our works. But He saves us through regeneration. James 1. Of His own will, He brought us forth. It's the language of birth. He brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. Somebody shared the word of truth, and God used that to bring us to new life. One last verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. Preachers don't cause their churches to be born again. God causes sinners to be born again. These two things had to happen in Lydia's life. Someone had to show up and talk to her about Jesus, and God had to open her heart to believe the good news, to believe what Paul was saying. Maybe the best description of this and what it's like is in John chapter 3. Jesus talking with Nicodemus, and he told Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus said, I don't understand. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, it's like the wind. When you went outside, did you notice the temperature was different than the last week? Like the wind blew that in. You can't see the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. It's just the wind, and it blows all the time in West Texas. You can see the effects of it. You can feel the effects of it. You feel the temperature drop. You see the dust cloud blow in. You know it's windy. That's what the Spirit of God's like in the miracle of regeneration or being born again. You don't control him. I don't control him. But we share the gospel. We plant. We water. And God gives the growth. These things had to happen for Lydia to be saved. She had to hear the gospel. God had to open her heart. Number three, Lydia repented. She believed. And she was baptized. This was her response To the gospel, her response to God's grace, verse 15, says she was baptized. doesn't mention repentance, it doesn't mention faith, but in the book of Acts, as you read Acts as a unit, those three actions always go together. Those who repent, 
Turn from sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus in faith. And those who repent and believe express their faith through believer's baptism. Those three things always go together. Sometimes Luke mentions only one. Sometimes Luke mentions two of them. And he says they repented and they were baptized. Sometimes he just says they believed. But all of those three things hang together. Repentance and faith and baptism. It's worth asking this morning, has that happened in your life? No, this is not the most exciting story in the Bible. There's no lions waiting to eat anybody at the bottom of the lion's den. There's no big boat being built to save a family from destruction. There's no giant cursing God waiting for a rock in his forehead. There's just a wealthy, upper-class, religious woman who is lost in her sins, dead in her trespasses. And somebody needed to come to town to share the gospel with her. Paul had no plans on doing that, but God had plans on Paul doing that. And he sent him right where he needed to be. There was no synagogue. Paul said, let's go by the river. Maybe the women will be praying. He found them. He shared the gospel. Just like he had done hundreds of times, thousands of times. And God did a miracle in this woman's life. He opened her heart to believe. And she turned from her sin, and she trusted in Jesus, and she was baptized. Has that happened in your life? Many of you would say, yes, it's happened. Yes, it's happened. And I would simply remind you this morning that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you should be thankful, number one, that someone shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a youth pastor, maybe it was a preacher, maybe it was someone on TV, who knows. Somebody shared the gospel with you. Maybe many people shared the gospel with you. You should be thankful for that because apart from somebody telling you about Jesus, you have no hope of salvation. Secondly, you should be thankful that God opened your heart to pay attention to what that person was saying. God drew you to His Son. When you were dead, He made you alive. He caused you to be born again. If you're a believer, it is only because God has performed this miracle of new birth in your life. Somebody shared the gospel with you, and God opened your heart to the truth. What do you get to boast about and brag about? None of it. None of it. You simply say, somebody shared the gospel with me, and God opened my heart. I repented. And I believed and I was baptized. Some of you have not done that. You've not made it through this process that Lydia made it through. And some of you may be here and you may think, you know, Lydia seems like a very nice lady, but I'm not a very nice person. There's a lot of stories in this book about not nice people being saved by Jesus Christ. Sinners, great sinners. You might be here and you might say, you know, I'm not sure I need to be saved. I'm a pretty nice person. Well, so was Lydia. She was lost. She was dead. She was a child of wrath. She was under the power of the prince of the power of the air. 
And she needed someone to share the gospel with her, and she needed God to open her heart. If you've never trusted in Jesus, we have prayed for you this week. I have prayed for you this week. That as we talk about God and His holiness and you and your sin and Jesus and His death and His resurrection and the call to repent and believe, that as you hear the gospel, as we plant and as we water, that God would give the growth. I can't do that in your life. Only God can do that in your life. And we pray that He would do it this morning.